0: Welcome to EGIL, the podcast.
1: Welcome to the first episode of EGIL, the podcast. EGIL is a family consisting of a journal, the European Journal of International Law, a blog, EGIL Talk video interviews, EGIL Live, and, as of now, a podcast. EGIL, the podcast. The aim of the podcast is to include even more people in our community through our discussions of international legal dimensions of contemporary issues. In this first episode, we discuss what is the contemporary issue of our days, COVID-19. A decade ago, Margaret Chan observed that the outbreak of the SARS pandemic. The virus writes the rules, and this one, like all influenza viruses, can change the rules without rhyme or reason at any time. How does international law deal with such a competitor? With me in this discussion are three prominent international lawyers. We have.
2: I'm Dapo Akande, Professor of Public International Law at the University of Oxford, and one of the editors of EGIL Talk, the blog.
3: Hi, I'm Marko Milanovic, Professor of International Law at the University of Nottingham. Uh, currently in Belgrade, and also one of the editors of EGIL Talk.
0: I'm Philippa Webb, Professor of Public International Law at King's College London, and I'm a contributor to the blog.
1: And finally, I'm Sarah Nouwen, an Editor-in-Chief of the European Journal of International Law and a Reader in Public International Law at Cambridge. So yes, we are complying with the physical distancing rules, but not at all we're social distancing. Our conversation about international law continues. So there we go. COVID-19. What is the role for the international lawyer in addressing this crisis? So on the one hand, in Hillary Charlesworth's words, international law is a discipline of crisis. But at the same time, we are all participating in this conversation from our homes. None of us seems to be an essential worker. So how relevant is our field in this COVID-19 crisis? Marco, do you want to start?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, as you said, we're not... Uh... We're not on the street, so we're not that relevant. Um, and I imagine all of us will, uh, will look at how relevant international law is from the perspective of our own sub-discipline, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the normal thing to, to look at. And so for me, you know, human rights law is the most relevant part of, of, of international law for dealing with COVID-19. Uh, uh, in, in addition to you know, even more sub-specialized areas of international law, like the, the law of the, the, the World Health Organization. So, so I think we'll, we'll cover a lot of various human rights issues uh, in, the, in this podcast.
0: Yeah, and Philippa, how is it for you? Well, one issue that's really concerning me is how international law can address the infodemic of disinformation that is accompanying this pandemic, including how we not only ensure that there is a free and transparent flow of accurate information, but also how we protect a free and independent press around the world during this time.
1: And Apo, is there a demic you're worried about?
2: Well, the law relating to economic relations between states and also the relations between states and private actors, I think, is going to be really important as we respond to this crisis and as we come out of, of the crisis. So for example, we see states banning exports of PPE, banning exports of masks, scrambling over ventilators. And in all of that, there'll be questions about what role for the, for the WTO, the World Trade Organization, to what extent are these export restrictions lawful? Um, there will be, ho- hopefully we will get to a stage where we start to see a vaccine or treatment and treatment developed for this uh, disease. And there, there'd be questions about intellectual property rights. You know, um, not all countries are going to have the capability to manufacture these vaccines and medicines. And then the questions will be, how do they get access to these medicines and vaccines? To what extent can they, for example, compulsorily license um, patents that, you know, private actors have been able to secure protections for? So, yeah, I think there's, there's going to be quite a lot that we'll be dealing with at that level of, of economics in the area of trade, but also even in the area of, of investment. You know, as governments respond to this crisis, they are taking measures in relation to private companies. And the questions that we will see as we come out will be to what extent are the rights of those private companies under bilateral investment treaties uh, violated?
1: Wow. So international lawyers do not have to be furloughed. They can keep working and thinking on all these issues. And you've immediately given us an agenda, not just for this podcast, I believe, but for the next few. There are so so many issues, so many dimensions to cover, including, as Marco mentioned, international health law, a very specialized area for which we may need to consult an expert to join our conversation. But the first points you mentioned, both Marco and Philippa, are really human rights issues. So perhaps we start with that. Marco, can you elaborate on the human rights dimensions? Is it just uh, I've got a right to life?
3: Yes, I mean, so so I mean, there are many, many, many dimensions to sort of how human rights law would would apply to the COVID nineteen crisis. I mean, in in that regard, I mean, let me sort of maybe just say a, a word about why we're doing this podcast, right? So we're doing it to to reach many wider audiences that might not be familiar completely with international law that do not read. Uh, expert commenter international law all the time, but are non- nonetheless interested in what international law, including human rights law, has to say on some of these specific issues. And so our ambition here is to explain things in a non technical way, and then get into some of the the the, the details, some of the 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 the, the nitty gritty of the substance of the law. And when uh, when when it comes to human rights law, right, we can see how, on the one hand, some human rights require state action in COVID-19 in the sense that the threat of the pandemic is to these rights as such, and that's the right to life and the right to health. And these rights actually require states to, to, to come back, to do all their all they can to combat the pandemic. On the other hand, there's all sorts of other rights from the freedom of expression to the right of liberty of per- person freedom of movement etc cetera, etc cetera, that are affected by state responses to the pandemic so all the measures that states are taking to actually fight it you know when states are trying to combat fake news as 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 we we're, we're going to talk about uh, in a minute are they unduly restricting the freedom of expression when they are instituting lockdown measures are they unduly restricting our freedom of movement or even maybe depriving us of our liberty. So, and is that justified or not? So basically human rights law is in, in a completely holistic way uh, relevant to the, the, the pandemic. And, and there are, there's a huge number of issues that, that uh, uh, we can discuss in that regard, many of which have been extensively analyzed on Eagle Talk for those listeners who really want to, to get in depth uh, on some of them. So they range first from what are the positive obligations of states to to fight the pandemic under the right to life uh, uh, and and the, and the, the right to health. We had a, a, a whole series of posts on 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 that particular uh, topic. Um, do they have any obligations to cooperate to prevent transboundary harms? How are they How are their measures affecting other rights? And finally. The whole framework of derogations from human rights treaties in times of public emergency. So I think we can cover some of these issues in in greater some some in in lesser detail. Uh, um, so what do you guys think? I mean, what should we start with now?
1: Well, let's do that cooperation one. It's intriguing. So the entire world is is dealing with the same issue, uh, the same the same big challenge. Can we now say that one country with a developed healthcare system should start helping countries with less developed healthcare systems. Is that what human rights law requires them to do?
3: Yeah, so I was, uh, before the whole lockdown started, I was in this nice uh, 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 event at Geneva, at the Geneva Academy, and uh, a, a professor of international humanitarian law basically said, ah, you know, you can't discuss this whole stuff about extraterritorial application of human rights treaties in the sense that Switzerland has the duty to feed the world right? So, you know, this whole question of to what extent states have obligations to outsiders, to people outside their territories, is a huge one, right? But that is one issue. A separate question is, do they have to cooperate? So uh, human rights lawyers who specialize in in economic, economic, social, and cultural rights, and I'm not one of them, they have for a long time written a lot about Uh, state obligations to cooperate in various aspects of of human rights, uh, specifically socioeconomic rights, and they actually have a hook for that in the text of Article 2, Paragraph 1 of the International Covenant on Economic Social and Cultural Rights. The reality of it has been, though, that states rarely act in the international arena as if they have human rights duties to cooperate in all of these various fields.
1: But what about civil and political rights, Marco? Hasn't a European court in one case found a duty to cooperate between two parts of a country that actually really don't want to cooperate?
3: Yes, well, exactly. So, I mean, even in the civil civil and political rights sphere, I mean, the whole cooperation issue has been marginal at best. uh, And and there's very little hard law on it. But one recent case deals precisely with that dimension. And that's the Guzel-Yurtle case uh, before the European Court of Human Rights, which dealt with a very sort of grisly assassination of a guy and his whole family in the Greek part of Cyprus and the uh, perpetrators then absconding to the Turkish-controlled part of Cyprus. And the European Court of Human Rights said that not only did Cyprus, the state, and Turkey, which controls northern Cyprus, independently have the duty to investigate the killing, they also had the duty to cooperate with each other in effectively doing a transnational investigation. Now, to what extent we can sort of draw an analogy between that and other human rights, like in the right to life protection duty, uh, I mean, it's completely unclear.
2: So one question in in this area of the duty to cooperate is that where exactly does it take us, particularly in relation to the economic and social rights and where exactly does it take us in this type of scenario so as lawyers we we often sort of look at is there a duty is there not a duty but even if we establish that there was actually a duty it's not quite obvious what kind of guidance that would give in in this kind of situation so you know think about issues relating to ventilators ppes these are things that are in short supply all around the world states are trying every state is trying to secure these for themselves the question would then be is there an obligation to actually give some of it to others as you are trying to secure it for yourself it's not obvious actually what the answer to that question would would be even if in theory there was a duty to cooperate with with other states
3: i mean i agree it touches on even on profound questions of like moral philosophy who do we owe obligations of care to you know do we owe greater obligations of care to members of our own community whether that's our own family our own you know religious community or our own state and wider society and can we therefore be selfish in taking for ourselves scarce resources and thereby denying these resources to others. So it's not simply Switzerland feeding others or, or Switzerland taking respirators, uh, not giving respirators to, to other states. It's that Switzerland or whatever rich state is buying all of this equipment, outbidding other states and making it harder for them to, to help their population.
2: And in that sense, you know, it's, it's actually also a matter of... Uh you know a balance of of rights as well in the sense that you owe these you owe an obligation to your own population as well you know so that's why i'm not so sure how how far a duty of cooperation would actually take us in this kind of scenario where you owe you actually owe an obligation to your own population to um, ensure the right to health within your own territory
1: so have you seen that states um actually understood human rights law in this very positive sense that Marco explained about actually human rights law is an, an an encouragement to address the pandemic or have States considered more as an obstacle and therefore try to get rid of their human rights obligations, for instance, through derogations?
2: Yeah. So we've seen a number of States, um, notifying the relevant international authorities, whether under the European Convention on Human Rights or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, notifying those authorities that they are taking measures that would otherwise be inconsistent with their human rights obligations. So this is you know, what we call, call derogations. Um, and of course derogations are permitted in circumstances where there's a state of, of emergency. Uh, So you have a number of states that are taking measures, in fact, maybe even most states are taking measures which would be restricting freedom of movement. We're all at home. We're not allowed to go outside. Freedom of assembly is is restricted. We've seen cases where you have possible um, what would otherwise be violations of the rights to privacy. So we're seeing states that are using. You know, uh, uh, data relating to, you know, telephones to track people's movements and then to report that to other people or, or to the authorities. And so the question that arises is, you know, does the ordinary application of human rights law prevent our attempts to fight this, this, uh, disease and the virus? I think the critical thing though to discuss here is, first of all, do we actually need derogations? Because if we think about the types of rights that I've just been talking about, freedom of movement, assembly, privacy, these are all rights that are not absolute. So these rights, whether under the European Convention or under the the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or all the other regional treaties, in fact, rights which are subject to limitations. Um, And so, you know, one question that I think we need to be thinking about is whether we should be going to derogations or whether within the right itself, actually states have sufficient leeway to take the kinds of measures that they are taking. Now, it's interesting to note that though many states are making these derogations, it's not a majority of states. You know, in fact, the majority of states that are taking these measures have not actually derogated. So presumably they are relying on the limitations that are inherent in these rights.
0: That is an interesting phenomenon, Dapo, because if you look at um, the dozen or so states uh, that have derogated, notified their derogations under ICCPR, it doesn't include Italy, Spain. You know, the states that have been suffering the most at this point in time. Um, But then the states that have been making these derogations have made them, in relation to those freedoms you mentioned, uh, movement, assembly and association, which we would have thought had these inbuilt caveats that would have allowed uh, this restrictive practice, at least for a temporary period, um, without a formal notification being needed.
1: But but what is the lesser evil or what is the bigger evil? Is it limitations or is it derogation? Because with derogation, you can at least argue that it is explicitly exceptional. Whereas if limitations start to be interpreted in a way to allow these rather radical measures, is there more risk that this is becoming the new normal?
3: Yes, I I think that's the big dilemma. Um, But to an extent, that dilemma will resolve itself simply because most states have not derogated. So imagine you're the European Court of Human Rights and you get a case a couple of years down the line uh, from a person who was subjected to some kind of confinement in Italy or France as opposed to where no derogation was made, and another case from a person, say, in Serbia where we did derogate, uh, who was subjected to the exact same measures. I would be shocked, frankly if the European Court of Human Rights said there's no violation of, say, the freedom of movement or the, or the right to liberty of person of the guy in Serbia because Serbia derogated, but there is a, de- a, there is a violation in Spain or Italy or the UK or whoever. I mean, the, the fact, it's a paradox, right? So we have more derogations now than we ever had, but because the emergency is affecting the whole world and the vast majority of all these states are not derogating human rights bodies will, I think, inevitably be dri- be driven to, to 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 view the entire episode through the lens of limitations rather than derogations. In, 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 in other words, derogations will formally have a limited role. I, I'm willing to bet a lot on that. Uh, there might be some particular issues where that's not the case. Um, basically, the only question where you positively need a derogation is where the human rights body created some kind of categorical rule. They say, you cannot do X in times of normalcy. So, you know, the European Court of Human Rights said you cannot preventatively detain people in times of normalcy. And therefore, when the UK wanted to detain people after 9-11 on purely preventative grounds, it did have to derogate, right? Um, But so long as you don't have those types of categorical rules, derogations are not strictly... Necessary, And because most of these measures do not seem to involve such rules, uh, and and most states have not derogated, it seems inevitable that human rights bodies will have to look at the whole thing through the prism of limitations, and it also seems inevitable that they will find the vast majority of these measures to be justified. There there, there will be exceptions, obviously, contextually, case-to-case, state-to-state. But I, I very much you know, doubt that the European Court of Human Rights will say all these lockdowns are a violation of the freedom of movement or, or liberty of person.
2: So it seems to me that you know, one of the real questions is, analytically, what's the difference between viewing it by way of a limitation or by way of derogations? Because in one sense, you could argue that actually, the key uh, test that you're going to apply in either of these scenarios is going to be the same, right? Because, of course, the limitations allow states to take measures that are necessary to achieve a legitimate aim in these cases where there's a pressing social need. So essentially what the court is going to have to look for is whether these measures are necessary. Of course, if you derogate, essentially what you're allowed to do is also that you're allowed to take measures which are necessary due to the exigencies of the situation. So then the question that arises is whether necessary means the same thing in the context of limitations as it would mean in the context of derogations. And secondly, whether or not a court that's looking at this years down the line is going to apply some kind of greater, to use the language of the European Court of Human Rights, margin of appreciation. Uh, In other words, is it going to say, look, it's for the state to decide whether this measure is necessary or or not and and I agree with Marco that I think in this case, whichever tool is used, the court is i think if if it comes to a court in years to come, is probably likely to give the same margin of discretion actually to states in judging this question of whether it is necessary or or not necessary. The only extra thing of course that a derogation I think gets you is that the derogation requires some prior uh, finding that you actually have a state of emergency, right? Whether whether we're talking about the European Convention of Human Rights or or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And one can argue that one advantage of a derogation is that it requires the state to say explicitly in advance, we are not able to comply with this right and that the state having to say that in advance puts some kind of domestic the government or the legislature having to say that in advance puts some kind of domestic political pressure in other words it has to kind of justify the sort of thing that it's trying to do rather than strict rather than simply just doing the thing in in the first place now in the scenario that we actually have in front of us now I don't know actually whether there's that huge domestic political pressure that's being exerted on on states.
0: The other advantage, Dapo, to to what you say about the domestic legislatures uh, is it's a kind of inbuilt sunset clause, right? So you'll notice in the derogations that have been notified, they say this is for 90 days, you know, and they specify the legislation that has been passed pursuant to that notification. With limitations, you don't get any of that there's there's not necessarily a time limit there's not necessarily parliamentary scrutiny
3: i think that's right i mean but but we should separate right the the our prediction of what international courts or human rights bodies will do with this specifically what does the law expressly require states to do from what we think they should be doing
1: don't forget the influence of this podcast. I mean, after (laughs) listening to this discussion, government advisors may steadily start derogating or they withdraw their derogations and say we start limiting.
3: I mean, it's certainly true. I I, I am sure that some states have introduced domestic states of emergency without actually even thinking about derogating internationally. I mean, if you're a small state with like a one lawyer dude in the, the foreign ministry who knows something about derogations, this is not on the top of your agenda. And I am pretty sure, for example, that in Serbia, the government derogated significantly later uh, after it domestically proclaimed the state of emergency, because it got questions from you know, the domestic public, you know experts of various kinds. Why are you not derogating human rights, NGOs, and so on? And then they derogated. And one reason Serbia derogated is because it has prior experience of doing that. Um, and, and different states will have different prior experiences with these issues. So, so that's, a, that's a hugely relevant point.
1: I think that's also a great point to get back to the point that Philippa mentioned in the beginning, the infodemic. So the problem that, um, of all kinds of misinformation spreading, but at the same time, some countries with a lot of experience in derogating using this opportunity to limit freedom of speech. Um, Philippa, what, what are your observations? What are you seeing at the moment?
0: Yes. So we've always had misinformation and and disinformation circulating in our societies. I mean, France passed a law about it almost 200 years ago. Um, But now with this pandemic, we see uh, an escalation combined with social media and the ability to disseminate information and forward it uh, instantaneously. Uh, It it has a real risk to public health and, and public order. Um, so we've seen hundreds of Iranians dying from drinking methanol in the belief that it's a cure. We've seen attacks on um, telephone poles uh, based on con- a conspiracy linking the virus to 5G. Um, so the two types of actions have sprung from this, Sarah. Um, one has been social media companies, uh, even though they're not strictly subject to human rights law, uh, acting Uh, probably more um, aggressively than they ever have before to uh, limit this misinformation. So they've got algorithms that are automatically taking down such material and redirecting users to the CDC in the US or the NHS in the UK. Um, But we also see states taking action, either using existing laws, um, such as in India, Egypt, Singapore, Kenya, or Thailand uh, that prohibit uh, fake news to then uh, arrest journalists or individuals um, for information they have shared uh, on the virus, or we've seen the rushing through of new laws. So just at the end of March, um, Russia rushed through a law doing three readings in one day um, that imposes fines of up to 25,000 US dollars um, or five years in prison for anyone who spreads what is deemed to be false information about the virus. Uh, and media outlets can be fined up to $127,000 for disseminating disinformation. Um, Hungary has also passed a law with prison terms of up to five years uh, for sharing false or distorted facts. Um, so this comes back to you know, what, what does international law tell us? What's the role of the international lawyer? Um, And as uh, Dapo and Marco have already mentioned, we we have a framework of necessity, proportionality, legitimate interest uh, and limitations such as uh, the right to restrict freedom of expression for the protection of public health. But these are quite broad standards um, and it's a challenge to apply them in a granular way uh, to the influx of both misinformation and state responses. And I know that Marco has a three-part series uh, on the blog that looks exactly at what human rights law has to say on combating viral misinformation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the the defining issues of of our time, right? Um, Clearly, some states are acting opportunistically. They're enacting speech-restrictive measures in order to control the information space completely and to suppress dissent or criticism of the government. I mean, that's clearly going on in some places currently in the world. They're not really enacting these laws to combat the virus. They're enacting them to protect the regime and so on. Right? So that's let's call that a bad faith actor. And we have always had problems with bad faith actors in international law. The question is how, how we deal with that. And I mean, we cannot deal with that now. But if you're a good faith actor and you want to adopt a law that combats or, or adopt some other measure that, adopts, uh, that, that, that tries to combat the spread of misinformation, the question is what, what human rights law has to say about that. And the basic instinct of human rights law has to be that normally the cure for bad speech is more good speech, that you try to fight misinformation by promoting accurate information. And, and there are many things that states need to do in that regard. For example, I want to listen to an expert explain to me you know, issues about the virus. I am, as an ordinary person, much more likely to trust the expert than I am going to trust a political leader, especially in countries like mine, for example, where the society is deeply divided politically.
1: But Marco, is that right still? I mean, if you look at uh, the Brexit vote, isn't that the opposite?
3: Well, that's right. So, so in, in, I mean, one huge problem with the whole Brexit episode was how the role of experts was, was politicized and consistently undervalued. But now you can see how you cannot, you cannot handle the virus without experts. And, and just look in the United States, which has had the most traumatic experience of political division in a, in a Western democracy. Just look, for example, at the prominence that Anthony Fauci the 79-year-old uh, 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 director of National Institutes of Health, th- the role and, and, and trust that he enjoys in the American public. And that trust does transcend to a huge extent the political divisions in America. And that's one thing that states need to do before they resort to censorship. And remember, this whole thing starts with censorship. So if you look at how the pandemic starts, it starts with local authorities in Wuhan suppressing news about the virus, punishing doctors who are whistleblowers, who are trying to alert the Chinese audience and the worldwide audience of a new
0: threat. So I agree that criminalization of speech is hardly ever going to play a role uh, in, in the human rights response uh, to the pandemic. But I'd just like to point to a recent South Africa law because I mentioned the rushing through of, of Russia and Hungary. But South Africa also recently passed a law and it is narrowly tailored. So it creates a criminal offence for publishing a statement through any medium with the intention to deceive about mm. COVID-19. So it sets the bar high. The speaker yes. must know the information is false and have the requisite intent to deliberately lie it's to... It's a very
3: high mens rea standard, basically. Yes. So it's like if you are in, in, in Iran and you are deliberately spreading misinformation that methanol will cure COVID-19, right? You should go to jail because you know you're going to make some people die from ingesting methanol. But if you're spreading that innocently and most people... I, I, I can't like give you the exact numbers, but 90%, let's say, of people spreading misinformation, do so entirely innocently, out of altruistic motives. They think they're helping you by spreading this misinformation. Criminal punishment cannot be a remedy for
0: that. Absolutely. So I've been involved through Kings with supporting the high-level panel on media freedom, and one of the reports this panel is going to release in the autumn is on misinformation and disinformation. And what we're finding as we look at the state practice and the international standards is that... International law has, doesn't have the granular guidance that states need to implement legislation that is going to have the correct balance of freedoms and not onerous civil penalties or criminal penalties. And also the response to misinformation and disinformation can't just be to legislate. It has to be, and you talk about this in your blog series, Marco, it has to be addressing the structural causes And education is a huge part of that. We need to develop, as you say, a curious and critical mindset in our children, but also among adults now who are believing this uh, very dangerous misinformation that's spreading.
3: That's right. So just like states are telling us, hand wash, hand wash for 20 seconds. They need to be telling us, I mean, they, government leaders, experts and so on, they need to tell us all the time. Practice information hygiene. Learn how to spot misinformation. 95% of that is relatively easy to spot. You can teach yourself in a relatively easy way. For example, if you Google sift, sifting through COVID-19, you're gonna find a website that does that, that provides you a tutorial over half an hour, one hour, all you need to protect yourself from 90% of misinformation online. And don't think, I mean, so education is hugely important, right? But as, as I write in the, in, the, in, the, in the blog post, smart people do this too. Practicing information hygiene and some level of intellectual humility is I think hugely important uh, uh, to combat misinformation. Like if you are not an expert in something, if you don't know enough about it, don't forward it. Don't send it on. You know, that's I think one key sort of part of our mentality that needs to change.
1: Dapo, you wanted to okay. come in on this. I,
3: I
2: was, I was, but I decided not to because <laughs> I, am not an expert, so I won't <laughs> put it on.
1: So, a lot of information, a lot of misinformation on COVID nineteen. But one thing is clear: COVID nineteen has been the biggest topic of. Any information spreading across the world at the moment. What is the type of information about international law that we're currently missing? It's gone off the radar that we should be actually paying attention to.
2: So one of the things that I would like to raise, something that I think would have got a huge amount of attention, if not for the pandemic, is the US government's indictment of uh, the Venezuelan president, Maduro, in the last sort of 10 days or thereabouts. I mean, in, in normal times, I think this would have been huge news. So how often does one state actually formally indict and bring criminal charges against the head of state of another, of another country? So for those who haven't followed this, um, so the US Justice Department, the Attorney General has indicted Maduro for what they describe as narco-terrorism and also for, for corruption. And this, the allegation is that Maduro and some key members of his government were engaged in a conspiracy with FARC. So this is the rebel movement in Colombia to ship cocaine into, into the US. Now, why is this of significance in, in international law? Well, it's of significance because of the rules relating to to immunity, particularly head of state immunity. Um, so ordinarily, um heads of one state are immune from the criminal jurisdiction of of another state because of the status that they hold. Now, in this particular case, what arguments, if any, would the U.S. have for arguing that they are able to exercise criminal jurisdiction over Maduro? So this, of course, is a scenario where the U.S. no longer recognizes Maduro as the president of Venezuela. And in fact, if you read the indictment and you watch the press conference where they announce the indictment, he's consistently referred to as the former president of, of Venezuela. So one can say, well, the U.S. isn't really... Um Signaling any changes from the normal rules relating to the immunities of heads of state it 's just that it doesn 't consider this person to be the the head of state now this isn 't the first time that the u s has has done this. People might recall that the u s actually put on trial uh, general noriega of of panama, <laughs> but quite apart so there are all those issues about who 's the head of state of Venezuela, and we can leave that apart. but one of the interesting issues is that he, Maduro, is indicted for things that he did even at a time when the U.S. regarded him as the head of state. And other officials are indicted for things that the U.S. considers that they did while they remain officials of, of Venezuela. So this then raises issues relating to the second type of immunity of state officials. So this is the immunity for official acts, or what international lawyers describe as immunity, ratio, and immateriae. And what's interesting here is on what basis, if any, actually does the US consider that it can exercise jurisdiction over these, these acts? Now, there are a number of possible arguments that you can make. One argument that you can make is that the US is saying that these officials were not doing it in their official capacity. Arguably, The U.S. might say, well, because it was all done for private gain, for that reason, it's not an official act, even if they're using state capacity, even if they're somehow using their office. But, you know, that would stretch the argument uh, a fair bit. There's a question about whether there's an exception to this kind of immunity for corruption. So this overlaps with what I've just said. Is it a private act or an official act? But there's been there've been issues as to whether there's a specific exception for corruption. And the International Law Commission sort of flirted with this possibility in their current work, looking at um, immunities of state officials. They decided to leave it out. Interestingly, actually, at that point, the US did pick up in their statement at, at, uh, in the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly, they picked up on the fact that the ILC left it out A third possible exception that the U.S. might be relying on is that a lot of these acts were, if you like, completed on U.S. territory because either the cocaine ended up in the U.S. or the proceeds, the money, ended up in properties in South Florida. And so arguably the U.S. might say, well, because these crimes are in effect committed or completed on our territory, you don't have immunity from things that are done in our territory. But even that's very controversial and again the ILC sort of flirted with including this as an exception but decided in the end not to include it explicitly in their in their work.
0: Dapo, this this is an area where as you say the International Law Commission flirted with some exceptions to immunity that would have provided a clear path potentially for the U.S. in this case uh, if their draft article 7 had expressly included an exception for corruption or had expressly included a territorial crimes exception. Uh, But the commission decided not to include those two exceptions. And when we look at the debates and the the reports of the drafting committees, the views are split within the commission. So we don't have a clear statement that these are or are not exceptions under uh, customary International Law as uh, understood by the commission.
1: Well, I think in subsequent podcasts, we will definitely cover a lot of those issues that people continue doing in the world of international law, despite all the restrictions of COVID-19. But on that note, perhaps we should bring this podcast to an end, Uh, opening up to the new ones. Before we end, on behalf of all of us, I would like to thank the Blavotnik School of Government for their support, to Jamie Morris for the sound production and to Vincenzo Calotta for the music. Arthur Matos for the logo. Perhaps we should end with a question rather than an answer. A question that all of us can think about. Arundhati Roy has described this virus as a portal and said, and I quote, Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. And she then describes that we can choose to walk through it, dragging behind us everything from the past, or we can walk through it lightly, ready to imagine another world. So the question is, what would a new international law look like? What would a post COVID 19 international law look like? This and more in next EGL podcasts.